Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here as usual. Today's episode is one of four that we recorded at the end of summer last year live at the Royal Albert Hall. The first two of those episodes with Hannah Fry and Adam Buxton as the guests have already been released a while ago, but for various boring admin reasons we won't get into uh, the last two we haven't released as yet, so this is one of those Robin and Sarah Kendall who was subbing in for Josie at the time who was just about to give birth as we recorded these and the guest on this episode is Alan Moore. As always, an extended edition of this and every episode is available exclusively to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become one of those, you can go to patreon.com slash book shambles or if you'd like to support us in other ways you can get something from our new online shop cosmicshambles.com slash shop books uh, prints book bags all that sort of stuff is available from there or you can simply tell everyone you've ever met about the podcast and the cosmic shambles network on your social medias uh Five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts for this podcast really help us out. If you've not done that, uh, please do. It takes like 10 seconds, maybe a little bit more if you're not already logged in. Remember, we've got some live shows coming up as well. Universe of Music with Professor Chris Lintot and Steve Pretty is at King's Place March 20 and April 3rd. I think I said April 2nd on the last podcast. Uh, that was wrong. Don't go on April 2nd. I'm not sure what's on. There'll be something brilliant on at King's Place. There always is, uh, but it won't be us. Anyway, here is this week's episode. Hello. This is, yes, Sarah uh, was on, about a year ago you did an episode of Book Shambles, didn't you? Yeah, and it was, it was a year ago, that's right. Recommended some very bleak Dark books. Dark stuff, I know. I, I, a few people uh, commented on that. Sarah Pascoe got in touch and just said, uh, wow, woman in Berlin, all right. Because, <laughs> yeah, she was the only other person who I, who'd sort of got in contact. Who is everything all right at home? <laughs> was, was, that, was that what she was <laughs> generally like asking? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was all very coded. Uh, but, but yes, there it was. It was comedians beautiful. aren't meant to find joy when not on so I mean, that's the whole cliche of it, isn't it? I remember that's doing right. a, a photo shoot for Radio 4 Comedy once with Ross Noble and Barry Cry and various others. And the uh, photographer kept going, come on, everyone, do something wacky. Yeah. That doesn't work. <laughs> um, so we're going to start this. Now, I've, I've done a few conversations with Alan before. So there may well be, a, uh, this is not, I should say, one of those shows which is going to go, uh, so Alan Moore, born in Northampton in 1953. It's not that kind of show. We're going to be talking about lots of different different ideas and also perhaps we'll be talking. Can I find out how many of you have read Jerusalem? Well, that's a reasonable number considering the length. That it's a big book and it is, uh, Jerusalem is, and as I genuinely told you, I stubbed my toe on it on three separate occasions. <laughs> it is a proper weighty book and like James Joyce's Ulysses, basically you can rebuild Northampton. That is what that book is, isn't it? It's and, a and actually just for the first, this is a terrible admission, 
but about uh, three weeks ago, um, my central heating went off. It was during that really cold snap. And uh, so I was just sitting huddled in my armchair and uh, I had very little in the way of entertainment and I thought, they've been going on at me to proofread Jerusalem, but it looked a bit difficult. <laughs> um, so I sat down and read it uh, over the course of, I think, two weeks, just sitting in this armchair, shivering, which is the best way to, to read Jerusalem. But sort of, <laughs> um, yeah, there were less mistakes than I thought, and uh, it was over eventually. You know, um, so you know, well done. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I was shocked because I remember when you, when you uh, were, were still writing it, uh, and you you said at one point you said the uh, the reason that you were making it so long was so only the strongest could critique you, and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you, it was. Some people did get, you know, there were, there were quite a few reviews, weren't there? But I found that interesting because that means one of the things that one friend of mine spent a whole year reading it. And I think in a lot of ways, that is the best way to read it. I had to read it quite quickly because we were doing an event together. And it is, there are, so, I mean, a lot of it is showing off as well, isn't it? I mean, it's a oh, book yeah. where there's, there's sentences yeah. you read and I can see you just going, <laughs> you know, there's a real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think mean, Kevin O'Neill said that about the cover. He said, you're showing off, aren't you? And, I mean, yeah, my, my drawing isn't that good, but I just wanted to show, yeah, I can draw the cover as well. Yeah, it's, I suppose this, a lot of it comes from having done comics for so long. Um, I've, I've enjoyed a lot of the collaborations, but uh, you can never claim all the credit for yourself, which is a very important thing to me. Um, so that's why I did Jerusalem, you know, and that's why I insisted that they use my difficult-to-see rubbish cover instead of a more professional job because I didn't want any artists taking the credit this time, you know. It's all mine. And I know a lot of people out there are very excited the fact that Zack Snyder's going to be directing it. Uh, <laughs> and so that's... Uh, Can I just... I just wanted yeah. to ask you about something because uh, I've, I've been reading all about you in the lead-up to this and in interviews and, so, and something that you said really resonated with me that you said that, you know, with these, these movies, these superhero and comic uh, movies at the moment, that these are men in their 40s, 50s and 60s that are embracing this art form that is sort of aimed at 9 to 12-year-olds. It's not the art form, it's the genre. Right, the genre, yeah. right, right, it's right. It's sort of... Uh, Such a great observation. Well, it's kind of... It is rather staring everybody in the face, yeah. you know. It, when I actually made that observation, it was... It was, I think, to the Guardian um, on. It was the Lon it was London's Fashion Week, and I just bought out. They a always book. interview you during London Fashion <laughs> Week. <laughs> What's in this year? Sticks that look like snakes. That <laughs> 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 I was sick. They couldn't talk to me, so they interviewed you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like that. They were asking me mainly questions about this book about that happened to be about fashion, um, but they stuck on a question. So. Um, this book that you've done, it was actually supposed to be a film script that you'd written for Malcolm McLaren, but it's been made into a comic book. So you've had some very strong feelings about comic books. That, and I thought, yeah, I know where this is going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so they asked me, what did I think about... All they know full well what I think about all of these superhero films, but they asked me anyway. So I sort of said... Um, well, the thought that hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of apparently adult people 
are queuing up to see Batman uh, is frankly worrying. Um, and The Guardian didn't print that at the time. They waited until, because I'd also said, look, this is contemporary adults who are going to see characters and material that was meant to entertain the 12-year-old boys of 50 years ago. And I don't think that that can be right, can it? I mean, surely people of the 21st century deserve their own entertainment for their own times. Um, but The Guardian didn't print that during London Fashion Week. They saved that until the weekend of the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Um, and then they printed it. And uh, Now, I wasn't specifically talking about Doctor Who, but if the cat fits. You know? <laughs> and the thing is, uh, I was criticised for that because, oh, you're taking it all too seriously. What does it matter if adults have a little bit of indulgent fun, you know, going to the Avengers movie or this movie or the Justice League movie? The thing is, um, 2016, when the American people voted Donald Trump in as president, and when the British people decided, where well, the English people largely decided that they didn't want to be in the European Union, that this year the top six uh, biggest grossing films were all superhero movies. Uh, I think that, you know, his supporters even call him the Donald as if that's his secret identity. Uh, I think that this speaks a lot towards the infantilization of the culture. Mm. That sort of, if you're soaking up this simplistic stuff in these very, very complicated times, then I don't think that you're going to be properly equipped to deal with reality. Um, I think that this stuff is insidious and it's also difficult to think that it's not some drastic act of compensation mm. on behalf of a largely American audience that they wish to appear um, super capable at something. Um, they wish to appear super benevolent, um, super fearless despite the fact that many of them can't sleep without a gun on the night table, and also slim. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, it is a, it's an act of projection. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I am frankly a, a bit embarrassed. Most of my superhero comics were criticisms of superheroes. They yes. were saying, yes. look, if these people actually existed in the real world, they'd all be Nazis or something. Or they'd and paranoid. Be just, like the, so I think you mentioned that. Yes, totally yeah. paranoid. They'd be exhibitionists. Yeah. Um, they would be the last people that you would want in reality. Yeah. Um, but I saw recently um, there's a, a with with the CRISPR, the gene editing mm. um, capability that we have now. There is somebody in America who is not only using this on himself, 
to edit out the genes that limit muscle mass. Um, he's also sending uh, home kits through the mail so that you can edit your own genes. These people all want to be superheroes. Um, that really isn't how they're going to end up. Um, I mean, messing with your own genes. I don't think you can do that with a home kit. I don't, we've all seen I the I think fly. it's a good idea, though. I, I love the idea of, of it. In terms of Darwin's, it's just a you know, if you we do want to say yeah. survival of, 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 of the fittest, which wasn't really Darwin's, you know, but if you say that, yeah. then many of those who don't survive will be those who buy poor quality mail order genes equipment. <laughs> so in itself, it's worked I'd very effectively. I'd love to know what's in the kit. So. Like, what's in the kit? What's in the kit? Gatorade and a syringe. Yeah, that's it. That's probably it. Well, I feel fizzy. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so this is... I wanted to use that as a starting point for the fact that a lot of your... Because I've also got here uh, just the, the collection of Future Shocks, which was probably the first time that I knew your work in 2000 AD. And as well as Future Shocks, you did Time Twisters. And um, quite a few of those stories, I mean, these, these are, what, 40 years old now, some of those stories, or, or nearly 40 years old, not far yeah, off. Yeah, get it off. Um, they do play around with genuine ideas of what were, and still are, some of them, contemporary ideas of science, of our understanding of, of, of time, the possible kind of, the, the nature of the fact that should you travel through the universe for long enough, you will end up here, you don't end up on the edge of the universe. So when did the science fiction, when did you start to realise beyond things like Supercar uh, and Thunderbirds and Joe 90 that there, there was a possibility of putting science in the fiction and using that to create the fiction? Well, I suppose that um, when I grew up, um, well, I, I was really, I was always interested in science, uh, even though I could understand very little of it to start with. Um, I remember, yeah, I mean, I can remember when I was doing, was it Halo Jones? And I was starting to absorb the, the fact that... Um, Time is a emergent property of gravity, uh, which when I was talking with Brian Cox about that, he said, oh, you know, and if you'd thought that uh, 80 years ago, you'd have been a genius. Um, but, yeah, it, it's obviously it's going to be better if, you're, if, if it's grounded in something. And also, science has got such a lot of brilliant ideas. In fact... More and more these days, I think that that is the some of the best things to come out of science are the brilliant ideas, whether they're right or wrong. And a lot of them we are possibly never going to know. But uh, I mean, the idea of black holes, things that don't let any information out. So you're going to have to work really hard to prove that they're even there. Um, and ideas like the multiverse, although I actually don't like that one. Um, People do seem to be going off that now, generally as <laughs> well. It's not just you. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a very elegant idea. Right? It's a bit messy. I liked, there was one of them, it was one of the ideas that was come up with to explain why the expansion of the universe is not slowing down as we had anticipated, but is in fact speeding up. And they came up with this brilliant idea. They were saying that our reality is a 3D facet 
of a 4D crystal which is expanding rapidly in a 5D liquid. <laughs> I, I, no, you could never prove that, could you? <laughs> but I think it's a lovely idea. Um, <laughs> increasingly, a lot of science is about these gigantic, beautiful, useless ideas. Um, like the, uh, was it simulation theory? Mm. That we're all inside... I think that the basic idea goes yeah. that uh, because we're going to definitely, apparently, we're going to definitely uh, produce a quantum supercomputer sometime within the next 10 years and that that will be able to actually simulate an entire universe down to the last particle which would also be able to simulate living beings that are simulated but do not know that they are simulated. And the theory is that if this is definitely going to happen in the next 10 years, then the odds of this... In being one of them is... Yes. This yeah, would have to be... The odds of this being the first time yes. are vanishingly small. Yes, if it's probable, then it's possible, and if it's happening, then it's happening right now. And so right. we're inside a simulation, inside a simulation, inside a simulation, right. and so on. So um, this just the Matrix. Didn't they do this like 15 no, years ago? Yeah. It's not the Matrix. It's 13th floor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's an interesting... I mean, that, that, that thing, it's, it's actually one of the only times that when I, when I was touring with Brian Cox and we did about 150 dates and the only two times we had stand-up rows that really ended with proper swearing at the end of them were over simulation theory because he quite liked the equation that Nick Bostrom put together in his... Well, he does like equations, Brian, doesn't he? He does like an equation. If He's you disagree with him on an equation... Yeah. yeah. So hang on. So what was the? F where did you stand on it? Well, I don't think it makes any. I. I, I don't. It. it I no mean, I, I'd also say to be fair to Brian Cox. Well, when anyone ever brought it up, the thing is, he said whether it's true or not, it makes absolutely no pragmatic difference to our existence. Mm. So it's something you might be able to have fun with, but the idea yeah. that definitely because there is this incredible increase in computing power. The speed of increase that we see means that undoubtedly somewhere along that line we will be able to simulate creatures and worlds in which sentience, etc., seem to... That, that doesn't seem to necessarily be a prerequisite in any way. So um, You can certainly have fun with the idea because when uh, Josie Long, when she was doing her kind of guerrilla art tours, and she was just doing gigs with a few people in like a freezing industrial car park somewhere. Um, and she asked me, she was going to do one in Milton Keynes. And she'd asked me if I'd go along and talk to some people in a drafty expanse behind a church. And I'm always going for that, <laughs> you know. And um, so I was telling them because, you see, I actually, my, my la the last time I had a proper job, uh, this would have been like 1975, and I was working for a gasboard subcontractor who'd got the who was laying all the pipes in the then expanse of mud that we have come to refer to as Milton Keynes. <laughs> so I was talking to this audience of about 16 hypothermic, slightly drunk people, and um, I was telling them about simulation theory. And I was telling that the author of that theory had said, right, so if we're inside a set of nested simulations, what is, is there any difference to how we should act? And he'd said, well, in most computer simulations, like games, um, it's the boring characters 
who are going to be edited out first. So it doesn't really matter if you're good or evil, but just don't be boring. <laughs> and it says the other thing to remember is that the person playing this game, who effectively, to us, is God, that they are probably in the game as an avatar. And uh, he said, now, it wouldn't be, say, the most famous person in the world. It wouldn't be like the President of the United States. I mean, let's hope not. Uh, <laughs> he said, but it would probably be somebody who has got a moderate level of celebrity. And so he says, uh, what we should do is to suck up to minor celebrities <laughs> because they might be God. <laughs> so I was saying, I said, but I said, people of Milton Keynes, I said, I'll put it to you that really that's not enough. I said, I've met a lot of minor celebrities and they're horrible people. I said, I think when you're looking at a minor celebrity and you're trying to decide whether this is God or not, you should have a look. Does this person actually look <laughs> and sound <laughs> like your idea of the creator of the universe? I said, but even that's not enough, because that could have you worshipping basically any tramp, couldn't it? <laughs> I said, what you need to ask yourself is, does the person in front of you actually appear to have been capable of physically creating the world around you? And I said, and in your case, people of Milton Keynes, I actually did. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm still worshipped as a god by the primitive and superstitious people of Milton Keynes. Was it, uh, was it you telling me that when you were working on that, there was that point in the early days of Milton Keynes where there was a bit of the planning, where someone uh, came yeah. back and said, uh, just to warn you, the fire hydrants appear to be attached to the gas mains. <laughs> yeah, it was um, a couple of our labourers. Uh, I think one was Polish, one was Irish. So these had both got these are two races stereotyped as being stupid. Um, and there was one of the planners from Milton Keynes in the office when they came in and said, "Yeah, th it looks to us like all of the the water mains are all of the fire hydrants they're connected to to the gas main." And he said, "Don't be so silly. Let me have a look at it." And, and just watching the colour drain from his face <laughs> was an education. Yeah, I mean, they, luckily somebody had spotted it before there was a fire, because that, that <laughs> could have been awkward, couldn't it? That is, the, there's a great book which I'd really highly recommend, and I know you've read it as well, and I'd recommend it to you, Sarah, if you haven't. Uh, Watling Street by John Higgs, who oh, also yeah. wrote Stranger Than We Can Imagine, a fantastic book as well about why the KLF burnt a million pounds. And one of the, it starts off explaining that you wouldn't believe this, Milton Keynes, it actually was heavily influenced by a uh, book View from Atlantis, wasn't yeah. it? John, uh, John, uh, John, John Michel, is it? John Michel, yeah. yeah and, it's, uh, and so, it, as well as looking like this very boring lump of concrete and tarmac, it is actually meant to follow some of the mythical sun-worshipping lines of things like Stonehenge and the Great... Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah, well, when I was doing From Hell uh, about the, the Whitechapel murders... And I came up with this totally elaborate... Um, it's all true, but it's, it's like there's a, a huge pentacle of significant sites over the whole of London. And, yes, those sites, they are all there. And, yes, you can draw those. But, basically, with a, site, with a place like London, which has got such a concentration of sites like that, you could make any shape 
out of it, you know, <laughs> if you've got enough imagination. But I was thinking, right, I'm kind of suggesting that people have built occult principles into London. Is that even remotely feasible? And then I read an article in The Independent which was talking about Milton Keynes. And it was saying that people had noticed that there was Midsummer Boulevard. Um, I think that if there's a, a flagpole at one end of it, there's the mirrored shopping centre at the other end, and on the summer solstice, the sun will rise directly above the flagpole and will be reflected in the glass, something like that. Um, and apparently they'd asked the architects because they were getting loads of pagans turning up <laughs> on to worship that, and loads of fundamentalist Christians to harangue the pagans and loads of police to keep the two sides apart. They asked the architects and they said, yeah, we were all young architects. We figured that the place should have some kind of motif. And we were all reading The View over Atlantis by John michel So, uh, yeah, we did it as a kind of joke. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought, yeah, that, that, that could have happened in sort of 18th, 17th century London, something like that, very easily. You just don't think of Milton Keynes as being a place of pagan mm. haranguing, do you? No. It's like of no. all the no. things. I think it's no. got great services, like off the motorway. I always stop at the services at Milton Keynes because it's got really good uh, toilet facilities. They're always clean. That's what comes to mind when I think of Milton Keynes. Mm -hmm. When I'm on tour, when I'm on the M1 and I see the Milton Keynes services, I think I'll stop there. Clean service. Because they've got good yeah. toilets yeah. Yeah. and there's an M&S. Uh, you can get yourself a salad, you can get yourself like a couscous They salad. were a lot more primitive when I was actually working there, mm. building the place. You know, yeah, but, um, yeah. I'm, I'm spoiled. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's the energy lines, I think. They actually, the, the energy lines <laughs> have created self-cleaning yes. systems and the yeah. whole bowl yeah. itself. They so, won uh, Lou of the Year in yeah. 2013. There's a plaque outside the women's toilets and everything, so... And quite often the pagan's hessian just ends up dropping <laughs> the bowl and that helps clean it up. With them. Yeah, anyway, so... Um, the, the nature of time. The uh, this is it's like as, as a travelling comic. Do you ever have that thing about the legendary Marks and Spencer that's meant to be open twenty four hours on the M one? There is no such thing. It's Robin. not true. Don't it's like, be insane. It's like the Brigadoon of the M one. <laughs> the Brigadoon of Marks. Hey, where did they say it was? Where is where is this? No one knows, but someone heard a rumour there's an M and S, and it means we don't have to have against us pasty. Imagine mm, the selection of Hummus and Couscous available. Hummus <laughs> and Couscous at three a.m. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a bit about time, just because... Well, one of the books that of, of, of yours that uh, I suppose doesn't almost get talked about as much, you, you did with the brilliant artist Oscar Zarate, who I absolutely love his work, and he, who did a, 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 one of my favourite Lexi Sale works as well, which is Jeffrey the Tube Train and the Fat, Fat Comedian. comedian yeah. and, and A Small Killing, and I was mentioning Time Twisters, and, of course, Jerusalem. There's all interest in the nature... Like, like A Small Killing, which we should say is long before Martin Amos's Time's Arrow. Uh, is a story told backwards, uh, a, sto or a story at least that plays with the narrative of time. Interestingly, uh, which was that? Was it Julie Birchill and Toby Young? Did, was that the modern review? That they yeah. Did? In one of the early issues of that, they did a review of A Small Killing, um, and they said, yeah, this is obviously uh, influenced by Martin Amis. Um, and basically dismissed it as slagging off, as me ripping off Martin Amis. Later, they had got a review of Time's Arrow, 
by Martin Amis because they did come out at a similar time. But they said, yeah, Martin Amis' story is obviously a rip-off of The Reversible Man by Alan Moore, which appeared in 2000 AD, a few years ago, um, which I thought was elegant. <laughs> you just uh, say all of your authors are stealing the work of the other authors. <laughs> that You can criticise everybody. You That's know. the trouble, isn't it? Once time's no longer linear, who is stealing from yeah, who? Who's this stealing is a from huge who? problem. Um, but I, 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 it was probably one of the. Uh, I suppose I'd, I'd read Watchmen v Vendetta, but I remember getting this and reading. It and, and then, and then when you, when reading Jerusalem, which you were influenced by the idea of the block universe yeah. for that. Again, something which removes this idea of time merely being, you know, the move thing, forward yeah. towards entropy. So when, when did that become th this idea? And I know, of course, time twist, there's a lot, again, of mucking around with, with uh, circular nature of time. What was it that particularly... When did you first start reading it? Because there was one particular scientist, wasn't there, who wrote about Block Universe that attracted you to that idea? There was... Well, uh, it came from a number of sources. I think that the first... Before I'd heard of Einstein, before I'd heard of a Block Universe, I think it first... The, the basic idea first came to me when I was five or six and living in St Andrews Road in Northampton, where we got uh, a load of framed photographs of people that I later realised must be my grandfather and perhaps a great-grandfather or so. Uh, old men in Victorian waistcoats sort of that, I'd, that were dead before I was born. Um, but I was looking up at them with the, the light bleaching in from the, the sides of the pictures and, and they're all kind of squinting into the sunshine and, and I thought... I wonder if they know that they're dead. And then I thought, well, no, of course they don't know that they're dead. But what I was trying to express was it came to me that, no, of course, they're alive. In the moment when that light is bouncing off from them, mm -hmm. they're alive. But I wonder, it was more like I was trying to say, I wonder if they know that I'm looking at them now mm. after they're dead. Yeah. And the next thought was, well, do I know that people are looking at photographs of me after I'm dead? And I thought, yeah, I kind of do, don't I? Mm. Um, and that gave me the... I thought, so we're all dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is all... It's all posthumous. Mm. And I didn't know quite what I meant by that. And then, I, in, in various stories, I was kind of playing around with the idea of a kind of coterminous universe where all of the moments are happening at once. And um, this finally crystallised until I, I'd, I'd done various stories that take a different view of time. And I suppose... But I was doing them as stories. Mm. Uh, oh, this would be a good idea for a story. But eventually, you do enough of them, you think, hang on, this, this is starting to sound true. I mean, disastrously, you know, you think this is starting to sound true. Um, and it struck me that if Einstein was right, um, then this, if this is a block universe where... 
basically space and time are existing as a kind of solid, then all of our lives would be, what, little filaments suspended somewhere in that? And if the whole universe is unchanging and eternal, then everything within that universe that comprises it must also be unchanging and eternal. If our lives, exactly as they are, um, are suspended in a kind of a lump of solid time, in this huge hyper moment, then the only way that I could actually express that is then this must be our consciousness moving through that medium that gives us the illusion of things changing, of things happening. It's a bit like a, a strip of film that all of those individual cells, all of those individual moments, they're not moving. They are un eternally unchanging mm -hmm. until the projector beam or our consciousness moves over them and then Charlie Chaplin starts to move around and do his funny walk. He, he saves the girl, he defeats the baddie. We get the sense of story and morality and character all emerging from these frozen images. And it seemed to me that that might be what life was like and that when we got to the end of the film, that didn't mean that the film no longer existed. When you get to the end of the book, it doesn't burst into flames and vanish <laughs> from your hands. It's, you can read it again. And this was what I came to think that life might be like as an endless recurrence. And it struck me that, yeah, I could see that there are some people who find that idea horrible. Uh, but I don't. I mean, like, it seems kind of scientific. It seems certainly uh, a lot more palatable than the idea of being judged by a unlikely remote entity whose ideas you very probably don't agree with. Um, the idea that, yeah, that Every moment was eternal. In fact, I've just finished a, um, just finished writing a strip uh, called "If Einstein's Right," which is for a, a benefit book that a friend of mine, Kieran Gillen, is doing for the Grenfell Towers disaster. And um, I was just trying to look at that from an eternalist perspective. Uh, because that apparently is what this is called, eternalism. I had no idea until I got someone to look up that point of view on the internet and found out that, yes, it's called eternalism, and apparently I am its prophet. <laughs> um, it wasn't very helpful. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to sort of look at the ephemeral sort of um, transient moments of our lives and actually think, no, that's there forever. It's like um, an unfortunate tweet that you posted on the internet. Yeah, that is there forever. <laughs> you know. That's a, that, sorry, I, I just, that really, that story that you just, I, 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 uh, the last show that I was sort of researching, I um, got really obsessed with the Challenger space shuttle disaster. Yeah. And uh, I kept on, 
because you know that was all recorded live on television and the crowds and everyone's looking up at the sky and you see the moment that How the many challenger was it seventy three seconds seventy three seconds into its then you, you see it sort of split apart and and you know it, it disintegrated and uh, I kept on watching the footage like I felt I just got there was something about I got, I got really obsessed about it and I was, it's very upsetting every time you watch it but every time I'd watch it it's feels like the same thing that you're talking about. I'd watch all of the astronauts happy and smiling and getting onto the bus. Mm -hmm. And then I knew exactly what was going to happen two minutes, 38 seconds later. And every time I'd watch the footage from the start again, I'd go, they're there again. It hasn't happened yet. Like at one... They don't know yet. Right. Yeah. At 58 seconds, they're fine. They're still there. It yeah. hasn't happened yet. There is all those pixels on my computer. They're still there in time... And this thing hasn't happened. Yeah. And if I press play and then the video runs out and there it is. But you get that sense of they're smiling and they're excited and uh, Krista McAuliffe, the teacher who won the competition, big smiles and she's going to teach a class from outer space and it's happy and brilliant and then you get to that time code and it's gone but then you go back to the beginning of it and there they are, yeah. you know. And there's something about that. It's well, it's, it seems to me that that way nothing is ever lost. Yes, yeah, yeah. The idea that the past doesn't exist and neither does the future. There's just this unbelievably thin tissue that we call the present moment and that this is all that's real. See, I wondered whether... Because one of the things sometimes when... I mean, I think that is, a, if anything else, it's also an inspiration to try and think, I better make this life fun because I'm doing it forever. Yes. But um, there's also sometimes when I've talked with... Uh, that I've had some amazing questions from... Uh, there, w there was a, a, a child the other day at Hay Literary Festival who asked me, said, how do I know that I'm not actually just being dreamt by someone else? Which was a brilliant, like a nine-year-old asking that. And then we got talking about the idea that if the universe wasn't inf of an infinite size... And I don't know if this... Because one of the things sometimes I've told, like, my son when he's been getting, you know, worried about mortality is the fact that our, you know, atoms will go on for as long as the universe does. And so everything that we are goes... It, it isn't you anymore, but those atoms become yeah. lots of different things. If the universe is of infinite size, does that mean that not only, obviously, this is having happening an infinite number of times across this infinite universe, but yeah. also, eventually, all the uh, atoms that have, you know, fallen apart that were once us as we've been put in the ground and been spread around will eventually reassemble as us? I suppose if it is of infinite size and infinite duration, mm. then, yeah, I guess uh, if it's infinite. But there again, I mean, infinite isn't real, is it? Oh, um, bloody hell, not that, that. Ever since I found out about Hilbert's Hotel, I'm so pissed off. I was, I actually, the, once I, you find out there's more than one... Do you know about this, Sarah? No. There's oh, more great. than one infinity. And, oh. it, and it involves taking even numbers, odd numbers, what's it, ordinary oh, numbers, oh, usual numbers. Oh, man, it's, like, it's, it's great. Mess. I've got, in the latest... In this last League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, we've got a little backup strip. Uh, the last eight pages, which we usually fill with text... Um, We've actually decided to do a strip that's like the really, really terrible British black and white superhero strips of the early 1960s, which were all dreadful knockoffs of the American strips, but in black and white and with generally much worse art. <laughs> so we, we're doing this thing, and we're having a load of fun with it. 
Um, but I introduced this character. Um, they used to have... There was a character in Steve Ditko's Doctor Strange comics that was called Eternity. And he's this huge figure that's got all stars and galaxies inside him. So I was saying to Kevin, I said, why don't we have somebody like that? But instead of all little stars, he's got like all floating numbers. And he announces himself as Infinity. And um, I have this great sequence where Captain Universe, who is one of these rubbish 60s British superhero characters that we're including, where he basically has an argument with Infinity and starts um, quoting who was the, uh, the mathematician who originally came up with... The, it was before Hilbert. Hilbert was a disciple of... Oh, the, yes, Cantor. That's Cantor, right, yeah, yeah. yes. That's right. So I've got Cantor explaining that, yes, there are, of course, infinite infinities because there's an infinity of subdivisions between any two whole numbers. Um, but I eventually explained the Hilbert Hotel. Um, David Hilbert, he was a disciple of Cantor's who came up with this hotel. It's got an infinite number of rooms. So, but unluckily, on the first day that it opens, um, an infinite coach <laughs> full of an infinite number of guests <laughs> turns up. But that's not a problem. They just put all of the infinite number of guests into one of the infinite rooms. The problem is that that afternoon, another infinite coach with another infinite number of guests turned up. But that's not actually a problem. What the hotel does is they ask everybody um, in an odd-numbered room, that they ask everybody to move to twice their room number. So the person in room one moves to room two. The person in room two moves to room four. The person in room three moves to room six, and so on. Eventually, this will leave an infinity of odd-numbered rooms. So you just put the, uh, the, the new coach load into them. <laughs> and if another coach load of infinite people turns up, you just do that again. Um, yeah, the Hilbert Hotel, it sounds great. I mean, the service is apparently awful. <laughs> well, that's... Uh, in, in the Monkey Cage book that, uh, that we did a while ago, How to Build a Universe, Part 1, I wrote uh, a TripAdvisor review of Hilbert's Hotel in which the person complained about not merely the fact they kept meeting other versions of himself and having to pay their bar bills, but um, <laughs> he just popped upstairs to his room and left his wife and child downstairs to leave the luggage, but not knowing that the lift had to travel at speeds near that of light, when he came back down, his wife was dead and his child was 93. <laughs> and so just... But there are, th that bit of just being... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating... But it's... It, for arts people... Oh, the lights are fading now, aren't they? Is that me? Or, oh, I'm having a stroke. Fuck. That's, uh, I, did the lights just change? Is that you telling, no? Okay, but we no, are, you are up, aren't we? No, you are having a stroke. You are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought that was you subtly saying, you've gone way over, because that clock's been on zero, zero for quite a while. But anyway, now let's start the podcast. So, Alan. <laughs> That's Robin.
We are in a block podcast, so we will go through the whole... I've got a present for you. So thanks very much for coming down, and thank you very much for all the Patreon supporters as well who are listening to this. Thank you very much to uh, Sarah, who's uh, joining us now, for as long as Josie's maternity leave takes. Uh, And uh, so thanks for listening to this episode of uh, Sarah and Robin's Book Shambles, and thank you very much to our guest this evening, Alan Moore. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Remember, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to sign up to become a Patreon and get an extended edition of this episode. Lots more chat with Robin, Alan and Sarah and extended versions of all the other episodes that we've released as well. Have an excellent week. We will be back next week with another new episode, which will be the last of the live recordings from Albert Hall when Robin and Sarah's guest was Professor Lucy Green. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.